It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 44, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Sophia Kruchevsky. Sophia leads the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition's work on food safety and has put a ton of time and effort into the FDA's new rules under the Food Safety Modernization Act, the FSMA. The final version of the produce rule was just rolled out by the FDA, so we take the time today to dig into who and what is covered under the rule, how the exemptions work, and the highlights of the major provisions of the rules, including some of the important victories we achieved in the proposal and revision processes, and where work remains to be done. Sophia does a great job of putting the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule into context, especially where we're at and what happens between now and the point where non-exempt farms have to come into compliance. Yes, there are still some more steps to go. We're lucky to have advocates like Sophia on our side to break things down for us. Do keep in mind as you're listening that Sophia is just telling us what we know now about the rule, and the rules aren't necessarily what she and I think make the most sense. And now, a word from our sponsors before we dive into the show. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software has a customizable management system to meet your farm's specific needs. CSAManagementSoftware.com. Sophia Kruszewski, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you could make this work. I know you just got off of a conference call with folks from the FDA about the Food Safety Modernization Act. Yeah, that's right. We we hosted a webinar where a number of uh, FDA's subject matter experts came on and um, did a question and answer with a number of our members about the specifics in the new produce rule. And when you say your members, that's the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition membership, and that's that's primarily going to be nonprofit organizations, right? Yep, exactly. The, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, we're an alliance of grassroots farm-based organizations that are spread across the country, um, and we collectively do advocacy work from D.C. on a number of different federal policies and programs, including the the food safety rules out of FDA. And so our members tend to be, um, you know, sustainable agriculture associations or other state-based farm groups, economic development groups, uh, food access. It's it's a pretty wide range conservation groups. They've got a, a very wide range of interests, but it converges around these issues of sustainable agriculture. And I just want to say, and I'll, I'll probably harp on this a couple of times during or in, and after the interview today, but I'm I'm so grateful for the work that NSAC has done. I mean, you guys have been right at the point of, as far as I'm concerned, all of the food safety activism around around the FSMA and the produce rule. And I, I really don't have any faith that it would be what it is without your guys' work on this. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's really been a, a collaborative effort across our member organizations and other allies in the sustainable agriculture community. It was really all of the the voices of farmers and food advocates nationwide that, that brought a lot of these issues to FDA's attention and I think resulted in many of the improvements that we see in these final rules. So it, you know, we, I appreciate that, but we certainly are not looking to claim all the credit. So how did you end up being NSAC's point person on the Food Safety Modernization Act? Well, I, uh, my background is a little varied. I, I grew up on a small diversified farm in Michigan 
um, just a small CSA, fruits and vegetables, some sheep, chickens. Um, and so I always knew that I wanted to do work in agriculture, but I also was pretty sure that I didn't want to farm myself. Um, and so that's kind of led me through some different um, paths uh, and, and jobs. But I most recently, before I, I came to NSAC, I went to law school in Vermont. I attended the Vermont Law School to focus on agriculture law and policy. Um, that's really where I found some of my skills and interests aligned best. And um, so I've been with NSAC for a few years now. And when I came on, my interest is really in administrative law um, regulations, trying to read them and, and interpret them for, for audiences, you know, that they impact. A lot of times you spend your time looking at regulatory text and it's just mind numbing. And I'm one of those strange people that actually kind of enjoys it. <laughs> and so what I really love to do is, is look at these rules and requirements and make sense of them for, for folks on the ground. And so um, when we were involved in the, the FISMA rulemaking, um, I came on after the law had already been passed and, and the rulemaking was sort of underway, it was a, a good fit for me to, to continue this work um, in, in advocating for better rules. I'm really glad that somebody is doing the work of, of, of wading through these because it really isn't easy when you dig in. So let's go ahead and dig in then. Um, <laughs> I thought a good place to start might be just to talk about what exactly is covered by this rule. What food, what produce does the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule actually cover? Right. So the produce rule, um, the definition of produce is pretty broad. Um, so, you know, what's what's important about these these rules, the produce rule being one of them, is that the way you determine who's covered and what you have to do is based on these definitions, but they aren't always the same definitions that you might think of as sort of a natural definition. It's FDA's definition, and that's what matters in these instances. And so FDA's definition of produce is really broad to include, you know, any fruit and vegetable. It includes mushrooms. It includes sprouts, peanuts, tree nuts, herbs. Um, it doesn't include food grains. Um, and so, you know, things like barley, sorghum, oats, rye, um, it also doesn't use seeds that are for oil, so cotton or flax seeds, soybeans, sunflower seeds, if, if they're made for oil. Um, so produce is really broad, but the rule only applies to covered produce. And so covered produce is produce that is still in an unprocessed state, you know, it's in its natural state, the way it was grown, um, and it's usually consumed raw. And so FDA has gone through and analyzed, you know, data on human consumption patterns and things like that to come up with a list of produce that they consider to be usually consumed raw. And that's a non-exhaustive list, um, but they have laid out a number of produce that fall within it, you know, almonds, apricots, apples, artichokes, avocados, bananas, Brussels sprouts grapefruit. I mean, I'm just moving through this pretty long list wow. um, that you can find in the rule. And then they also have an exhaustive list, so a limited list of produce that's rarely consumed raw. And so if all you're growing, or if you're growing a mix, but if what you're growing is rarely consumed raw, then the rule doesn't apply. And that's a an exhaustive list, so it's limited to, um, I'm not going to read off all of them, but asparagus, the number of beans, black beans, great northern beans, kidney beans, um, potatoes are on there, pumpkins, other winter squash, sweet potatoes, uh, pecans, peanuts, ginger, figs, eggplants. So some are things that, um, you know, people just can't really process if they were to eat it raw, like 
uh, coffee beans, although I mean, right. right. So, or, or potatoes. For all, for all of my listeners that are growing coffee beans, you guys are, you're in the clear. <laughs> right. Yeah. But there are some interesting ones on there that, you know, for some of us, maybe we kind of do a double take. For example, beets are on the list of rarely consumed raw. Figs are on the list of rarely consumed raw. Um, cashews. You know, so some of these things may be widespread. They're they're not they're rarely consumed raw, but I think you know some people do eat them raw. So you, yeah, it, in terms of drawing the distinction between what's covered and what's not, you know, if, if it's fresh produce, you want to assume that it's covered unless you've checked it against this list. Okay, great. That's that's a really good solid guideline. So assume that it's covered unless it's on the list that says that it's not covered. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance that things are going to get moved from the not covered list to the covered list? Or is this good? Is this kind of a set in stone sort of a thing? Yeah, it's it's pretty likely that it's not going to change. You know, this is this is codified in the agency's regulations. And so if they were to change this list, it would have to go through another public comment process. They would have to repropose to add or remove things, get public comment and then finalize the rule. And that just takes a lot of agency power, you know, manpower um, and a lot of time. And so. I think that it's pretty unlikely to happen. I mean, it's possible, um, but I, I think it's this is probably pretty set. And I guess that's an important thing to to make clear at this point is that the the rule's a done deal. It's written and it's it's over, right? I mean, we this is the rule that we're going to have to live with. Yeah, with the exception of um, the the standard that's related to raw manure when you can apply raw manure. Um, the rule's been finalized. That that part of the rule has been sort of deferred for later action. Um, so otherwise, the rule is final. Though it, you know, it's important to note that um, much of the detail about how exactly you do what the rule requires that tends to come out through um, what are called guidance documents. And so these are are documents that FDA develops, usually with stakeholder industry input, that gives a clearer idea of you know when they say your water must be of adequate quality for its intended purpose, you know what that actually means and, and how to how to do that on your farm. So when will we start to see those kinds of guidance documents? Because one of the things that really drives me nuts as I as I read through and try to evaluate the rules is, you know, you run into something like, well, here's a here's a standard that I pulled out it says you must handle, convey and store any biological soil amendment of animal origin in a manner and location such that it does not become a potential source of contamination. I mean, that could be like that could mean 10,000 different things. Uh-huh. When are we going to start to see something that says what does that mean? Like, how do I know that I'm actually following the rule? Right. Yeah. And, you know, some of the reason why that language is broad is to allow for farmers to follow them in different ways. So to not be overly prescriptive in, in the way that you adhere to, to what they want you to do. You know, some I've heard people say that the rule is going to tell you what, but it's not going to tell you how. And so you, the how comes from training programs or other educational resources that might come out of extension. It might come out of a farmer organization in your area. Um, we're going to try to put out some more, you know, interpretive materials. And then some of that will also come from FDA through these guidance documents. Um, I don't know that they're going to put out guidance documents on every single section of every standard, um, but they do have a number of, of documents that are sort of in the queue 
Um, they have to do a small entity compliance guide, which explains particularly for small businesses how to comply with the rules. They've said okay. that they're going to put out something specific to the water standard, um, and that'll probably be one of the first ones that comes out um, or one of the early ones. They're also going to put out a guidance that explains um, their definition of farm. So for the, the other main rule that we've been focused on, the preventive controls rule for human food or the facilities rule, um, farms will know when that rule applies to them based on their specific operation. I think we've hit on, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the rule as, as you and I are, Sophia, a, a couple of really key spots here. So, I, and, I, and I, we're going to kind of have to circle around to all of this stuff, but there's the there's the facilities rule. And I want to talk about what are the differences between the facilities rule and the produce rule and when that facilities rule actually kicks in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this idea that there are kind of these five major provisions of the rule. And that's this, this idea that, that, um, well, they've sort of broken this out, I guess, into five different areas of food safety. So worker training and health and hygiene, domesticated and wild animals, equipment, tools, and buildings, water, biological soil amendments. So we got kind of those five sections that I want to touch on. And then there's also just this issue of, of different sized or operations are affected by this rule in different ways. So we're going to hit all of that during the next hour or so here, but let's talk first about when the facilities rule kicks in and what's, what's the difference between the facilities rule and the produce rule. So the facilities rule um, is going into effect, uh, or I believe it, it just has, um, it was published in September of this year, and then it takes 60 days for it to go into effect. Um, and then that rule applies to, uh, food facilities. So any place that is manufacturing, processing, packing, or holding food, very broad. This is a very, very broad definition. If you, if you meet that definition, your facility, you're expected to register with FDA, and then this new facilities rule applies to you and sets standards, food safety standards for how you do your processing. Um, now, it's a really broad definition, but then there are all of these exemptions that follow from it, and, and sort of generally, farms are exempt from this requirement to register as a facility. Even though I'm packing produce in my packing shed, that doesn't turn it into a facility because I'm a farm. Right. So farms um, that are that are packing produce or, you know, other types of raw agricultural commodities, um, they are exempt from, they're, they're not considered facilities as long as you meet FDA's definition of farm. So this is, again, another example where your definition of farm and FDA's definition of farm may not totally align. And over the course of this rulemaking period, it went on for several years, um, we saw a lot of improvements to the way that FDA has been defining farm based largely on comments that they received um, from folks around the country saying, wait a minute, you know, the way that you're defining farm is really limited and doesn't account for how um, farms can be made up of multiple parcels spread across counties or even states. Um, They may rent, they may own, there are all these different kinds of arrangements. And so the way you're defining farm is going to sort of define out all of these operations and make them facilities and then subject them to these rules designed for, you know, closed system facilities. Um, And so the, the final definition of farm that we see now 
uh, really made some significant improvements. And now a number of those types of operations um, that you think of as a farm continue to be a farm. But the, the line of when you do cross into the, the area where you might be covered by the facilities rule is if you're doing any kind of value-added processing on your farm. So if you're growing produce, then you need to know, does the produce rule apply to me or are there some exemptions that may, you know, get me out of the produce rule or mean I, I can get modified requirements under the produce rule? And then if you're also doing anything with your produce on your farm or, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about grains, um, then does that bump you into this facilities rule? And so... Um, the the types of processing activities that you're doing on your farm, some of them fall within FDA's farm definition. So things like packaging and labeling or maybe drying of herbs without any kind of chopping, um, those are, are still considered farm activities and, and you wouldn't fall under the facilities rule. But if you start, you know, chopping up apples into apple slices or, um, you know, peeling squash or something like that, then you, you, you cross over that line and you're considered a farm, but you're also considered a facility. And then you need to figure out if this facilities rule might apply to you. Once we figured out that we're subject to the produce rule and that that's, that's our primary thing that we're worrying about because we're a farm, I'm growing vegetables. Maybe I'm selling them to a grocery store. Maybe I'm selling them at farmer's market. Maybe I'm going through a CSA, but I'm not I'm not peeling the squash. I'm not chopping up peppers. Um, so I'm still, I'm still a farm. There's several different ways that the rule might apply to me depending on how much produce and how much food in general I grow on the farm, right? Yep. So the, the way the rule, the produce rule applies um, is first based on the amount of sales that you have from produce. So the rule only applies to farms that are grossing more than $25,000 a year in produce sales. And that's averaged across a three-year, sort of a rolling three-year period. So if you look at your past three years of sales and you average them, and if that annual amount, again, this is gross sales, if that's $25,000 or less, then you're completely exempt from the rule. That's sometimes called the de minimis exemption. So the amount of produce that you're putting into the stream of commerce is small enough that, that you can kind of slip under the radar. So that's kind of the first category. Also, if you're only growing your produce for you know your own on-farm consumption, it's not actually going out for sale into commerce, you're not covered. Um, if it's destined for commercial processing, so if you sell everything that you're growing to somebody else who processes it with a kill step, so they're going to make tomato sauce and can it out of your tomatoes, then you wouldn't have to worry about the produce rule applying to your tomatoes. Um, but there are some assurances and disclosures that would need to be made. Um, so you would have to keep some records to kind of justify your exemption. For example, a record that justified your exemption would be would be your sales records or something that says everything that I grew, I sold to this tomato processor and they intended to turn it into tomato sauce. Yeah. And you have to disclose to the to your buyer that you haven't processed your food. Um, and then you have to receive from your buyer written assurances that they're going to be processing the, the tomatoes, for example, in a way that adequately reduces the presence of you know, microorganisms of public health significance. So you have to, there, there has to be kind of that two-way assurance, and then you retain those records. 
So if I'm selling less than $25,000 worth of, is it, is it produce or is it covered produce? It's all produce. It's all produce. Mm-hmm. So if I'm selling under $25,000 of fruits and vegetables, I don't have to follow any of the rules at all or... I mean, so, I mean, does that mean that I can, I mean, does that mean that I can go out and put raw manure on my field the day before I harvest my vegetables and I'll be okay? (laughs) So you aren't held to these specific standards, but you are still held to general requirements that you not put adulterated food into the food supply. That's sort of an overarching requirement that applies regardless of whether or not these specific requirements apply to you. If you're putting adulterated food into the food supply, then FDA would have a, a recourse. They would find, you know, if they found out it was you, they'd have a way to come after you. Sophia, you're you're using this term adulterated food. Could you just could you explain what exactly adulterated food is? So this law is also um, a criminal law in the sense that if you violate certain portions of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, that's considered a prohibited act, and it's it's a criminal offense. Um, FDA can come after you or, you know, it might be the Department of Justice because you violated this uh, requirement. And so that might be punishable by jail time or a fine or something. You know, we're seeing that with like the um, it was just recently in the peanut butter case. It was in the peanut butter case. And we also saw it, I think, in the cantaloupe case. Yep, in the didn't cantaloupe we, in case 2011. Too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, um, you know, if you violate what these standards require, then um, FDA can take that kind of enforcement action. And so there's sort of a general requirement that's part of existing law that you you have a duty to keep adulterated food out of the food supply. And adulterated means, you know, it's contaminated, it's filthy, it's otherwise unfit for human consumption. Um, and so that's that's where that adulteration comes in. And so it's, it's a word that's sort of strewn throughout the, the rule um, to just kind of as a reminder that, you know, just because you're exempt doesn't mean you don't have any duty at all um, under the rule or under existing law. There's also the the reality that some growers who may not be fully covered by these rules, um, their buyers may still be requiring them to show some sort of compliance with some sort of food safety standard, whether that's like going through USDA GAPS, um, or some other kind of market certification program. So even if FDA isn't requiring something of you, your buyers might. That's interesting. So the buyers don't have an obligation under the FDA right now to ensure that their producers are actually following the rule. So a food co-op or a grocery store could buy from an exempt grower. Mm-hmm. That's an okay thing for them to do. Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, just because you're exempt from the rule doesn't mean that anyone should assume that you're not following food safety practices on your farm or you're somehow, you know, uh, they shouldn't be able to assume that you're putting adulterated food in the food supply, for example, just because you're exempt from the rule. It sort of depends on what the supplier is doing, whether they have an obligation under FISMA to require something of you. And so there, there, is, there is some language in the facilities rule that directs um, facilities that are buying from farmers or other suppliers to verify that their suppliers are conforming with whatever food safety standards they might have to. And so in the case of an exempt farm, if a, if a buyer wanted to buy from an exempt farm, what the facilities rule would require is just that the exempt, exempt farm provides some assurances to the buyer that, you know, I'm exempt, but I, you know, hereby certify that I'm not that I acknowledge that, you know, I can't put adulterated food into the food stream, something like that. 
Um, so there are sort of those, some of those protections built in so that buyers don't um, sort of undo the exemptions or the qualified exemptions that farms might be eligible for um, that were written into, you know, the statutory language of FSMA. But, you know, buyers can still, it's, it's a free market in that sense. And so buyers may still require more than what the rule says those types of farms have to do. So it's really, that comes down to the personal relationship between the buyer and the farmer. Okay. So, so that's, that kind of covers the absolute exemption where you're not, you're not required to comply with the rule, except that you still can't put adulterated product or unsafe food into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But, but then there's, there's these other, there's these other exemptions, this, this whole, I think it's called the qualified exemptions. Right. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. There's also, so for some, some farms that um, exceed the $25,000 sales thresholds, they, you may not necessarily be subject to the full produce safety rule just because you have more than $25,000 in sales. Um, you might be what's considered a qualified exempt farm, or some may also know it as a Tester Hagen exempt farm. Um, that name comes from the, the senators that got this, this protection for farms that are doing direct sales or local sales, uh, Senator John Tester from Montana and former Senator Kay Hagen from North Carolina. Um, and so that, that language uh, in FSMA established alternative requirements or modified requirements for farmers that are primarily selling into local markets. And so to be a qualified exempt farm and eligible for these modified requirements, then you have to meet a, a few specific criteria. Uh, the first is that you have less than $500,000 in total food sales. So not just produce sales, but all food sales. Um, and that is based on a three-year average, and it's also adjusted for inflation. Um, so that's the first criteria, less than $500,000 in all food sales. And the second is that the majority of your sales, uh, so over half, um, are going to qualified end users. And those are defined as an individual consumer or a restaurant or other retail food establishment like a grocery store that's located either in your state or within 275 miles from your farm. So if those two criteria are met, less than $500,000 in sales of all food and majority sold to a qualified end user, direct to a qualified end user, then you are a qualified exempt farm. And qualified exempt farms have to retain uh, records that justify that status, so the sales um, and the the you know the sort of that their their end users meet this definition of the qualified end user, and then they have to do some labeling to help with traceability, um, which involves you know having if you're selling for example through a farmer's market you know that you have your um, the name of your farm and your location there on a sign where you're selling or it's on a label on your product, and then that's you know that's sort of the extent of it. For a lot of my listeners, then all of the all of the details, all the getting down in the weeds about what exactly the requirements of the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule simply aren't going to apply to them. So does that mean they don't need to worry about what the the produce rule standard for domesticated and wild animals actually is? Well, I don't know if I would quite go there. I I would say that it's, you know, it's still really important to know what the rules require because there is um, the, 
there is language that says, you know, FDA, if you're a qualified exempt farm, there are circumstances under which FDA could withdraw your qualified exempt status. And in that case, you would have to know what the full requirements are and come into compliance with them unless you're able to regain your qualified exempt status. Um, so it's important to know what's in there. It's also, you know, it, it, we go back again to the fact that, um, you know, you can't put adulterated food into interstate commerce. Um, and so you should know some general practices that, that are likely close to what FSMA requires anyway. I mean, it's very possible that many of your listeners that may be qualified exempt farms are already doing a lot of what is required under the produce rule. Maybe they're just not thinking about it in the same way or they're not keeping the same kinds of records about it. Um, so it's important to know. And also, again, because it's very possible that for some of these farms, if they want to scale up a little or maybe they want to start buying to other institutions, um, that those buyers may require some sort of food safety certification of them that's not so different than what FSMA requires. So I wouldn't, you know, I, I keep an eye on it, you know, know, know what the rules say, um, but but that is a really important um, a, a really important protection for, for farms that are doing these direct sales and participating in these short, simple supply chains. And again, those exemptions basically come down to how much food you're selling mm-hmm. and who you're selling it to. So if I'm selling all of my produce to a food hub or a wholesale distributor and I'm selling more than $25,000 worth of produce in a year, then I'm going to be... I'm still going to be subject to the FSMA, even though I'm still a very small scale grower. And even though my, my food hub is maybe located 30 miles from my farm, mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm still subject to that. That's right. That's right. Now, if, if okay. in that same situation, you were selling, you know, 49.9% wholesale and 50.1% to, through a CSA or a farmer's market or to a restaurant or something, then you would qualify for that exemption. Right. But if I'm set, once I hit that 50% mark, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm, I'm kicked out. That's right. Okay. Okay. And keep in mind um, also that it's, it's the, the, those sales thresholds are based on more than just produce. So, you know, you could be an operation that has, um, you know, gosh, what are some numbers? $400,000 in dairy and you've decided to start getting into produce as well. And if you have a $115,000 in produce, and $400,000 in dairy sales, then you've already exceeded that $500,000 threshold, even if you're selling everything direct to consumer. Wow. I'm assuming that, that NSAC's putting out a flow chart to help us navigate that one. We are. We are. We put out one during the produce, the proposed um, rulemaking phase to try to give folks a sense of what the rule could require. And so we're in the process now of updating that to reflect the new requirements. And those have flow charts that, um, for apply to both the produce rule and the, the facilities rule as well so that farmers can walk through, uh, you know, the questions that help answer if the preventive controls rule might apply, the facilities rule, or if the produce rule might apply. And then if it does apply, what does that mean and where to go for more information? Brilliant. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> So, so the produce rule then goes on to to break out uh, farms into three different sizes. There's the very smalls, the smalls, and then everybody else that doesn't fit into either of those two categories. And that language really just has to do with when you're going to be expected to come into compliance with the rule. Now, the rule becomes effective 60 days from publication, which is going to be when? About end of January? 
Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. The rule comes into effect 60 days after publication. So that's January 26th of 2016. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the compliance timeline set in. Um, so the rule becomes effective, but I don't have to be doing everything in the rule on January 26th. That's correct. Yep. In fact, for all farms, um, you have at least two years from that date, from January 26th, uh, to come into compliance with, with most of the requirements. And so those are farms that aren't small or very small. Those are the, the larger operations. You have two years. Um, and then if you're considered a small business, you have three years from that date. And if you're a very small business, you have four years from that date. And what are the numbers for a very small business and a small business in terms of, of sales? So a small business is characterized as having no more than $500,000 in produce sales. So that's not all food sales, but just sales of produce. If you have $500,000 or less in produce sales, then you're a small business and you get three years to come into compliance. Um, if you have less than or $250,000 or less in produce sales, then you're a very small business and you have four years to come into compliance. Okay, so there's there's not a need for anybody to panic at this point. Or if you hear something on the podcast and you go, "Wow, I don't understand what that means," it's not like you're you're you have to have it figured out by the end of January. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's time to to read it through to figure out. You know, I always think about it. You first ask the question: Does this rule even apply to me? So you know, go through all of those those threshold numbers and, and figure out, you know, what, what, how much you're growing, who you're selling it to answer that. Does this rule apply to me question? And then you can start thinking about, okay, it applies to me. Now, what do I need to do? And in the course of these next, I mean, these upcoming months, years, I think you'll see a lot of informational, educational material, training, technical assistance, um, things of that nature come out of, uh, you know, maybe through research institutions or, or farmer organizations, community-based organizations, extension and others to help explain in more detail what you're really required to do. Um, the only thing that I would note that you do need to start doing soon is if you think that you are going to claim this qualified exemption, if you think that you satisfy those, that the criteria of how much you're selling and who you're selling it to, um, you do have to keep records that justify your status as a qualified exempt farm. And you should start retaining those records now, really, because if you think about it, you know, maybe that means that you have three years before you come into compliance with the rules. Um, but your status is based on a three year average of sales. And so you want to start collecting or retaining those records of sales now so that by the time the rule comes into effect, for you, you'll be able to, to calculate your sales and be able to, to justify your status. When you're saying retain, you know, creating and retaining those records, you know, that sounds all very official, but that, I mean, that's really just tracking your sales. Mm -hmm. who, are, who are you selling your product to? So if you've got invoices and a record of your farmer's market sales, you've got the information that you need, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You just need to, to keep a record of who you're selling it to, how much you're selling and be able to provide those. And now you don't have to submit them to FDA, you know, in advance or anything like that. Claiming the qualified exemption doesn't mean, you know, sending anything into FDA. You just need to have those um, in case, you know, for some reason, FDA asks for them. <laughs> so, again, it's not like you're going to have to file a piece of paper that says I'm exempt. You're just 
you're just going to keep doing what you're doing until somebody comes along. And at that point, you would say, hey, we're exempt from this. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Um, the, the, an important point of comparison, kind of a compare and contrast with the preventive controls rule, the facilities rule, is that there are also qualified exemptions from the facilities rule. But with a qualified exemption from the facilities rule, you do have to submit some sort of attestation to SDA that is documenting your status. Um, So just something to keep in mind. For produce rule, you keep your records, but you don't have to submit anything to SDA. But for the, the facilities rule, you would. I hope everybody's holding on to their hats. I know, I know my, my head starts swimming at about, at about the sixth mention of the produce rule of the facilities rule and the qualified exemptions. Yeah. So uh, I, I hope everybody's, I hope everybody's hanging in there on this. Okay. So we just talked a little bit about this process of, of not having to go to the FDA and say, I'm exempt from this rule. If I'm not exempt from the rule, what happens? Like, what's what's the process of the FDA coming in and actually verifying anything? Yeah, that is really, that's the million dollar question, I think. Um, you know, because at this stage, it, we don't have a very clear picture of what compliance is going to look like on the ground. Um, FDA has been in uh, discussion with the the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture that sort of represents all the different secretaries of agriculture, commissioners of agriculture across the country, um, to try to figure out for the produce rule uh, whether it's going to be FDA that's out there enforcing the rule or if it's going to be the states that it, that's doing it. Um, you know, FISMA d- directs them to work together on this. And so they're trying to figure that out, but they still haven't put out anything public that says, okay, for these states, it's going to be FDA. For these states, it's going to be the State Department of Agriculture. I mean, maybe some states, it'll be the Health Department. It's still at this point very, um, very ambiguous, um, very gray. But what we do know, you know, there are some hints in in the preamble and sort of the explanatory text of the, the produce rule that talks a little bit about what FDA is thinking about in terms of compliance and inspections. And again, this is, this is just for covered farms, um, at least what FDA is, is talking about, you know, so these are just the farms that aren't exempt, aren't qualified exempt. Um, They, they are, they, they sort of allude to the fact that they're thinking about what an inspection program would look like and how frequently they would be out on farms and, you know, they, they do say it's going to be a risk-based determination in terms of how they choose which farms to inspect and when, and that maybe audits, if you're doing some sort of third-party audit, that might somehow play into their decision of whether or not you need to be, you know, if that, are you high or low risk and how will that all fit in, which is also kind of confusing and I think a little concerning for some um, who either don't necessarily, you know, aren't convinced that a third party audit is always a reliable indicator of compliance or of risk or as, as I like to point out the the cantaloupe outbreak in 2011, those guys passed exactly. their food safety audit three days before the, before the outbreak right, started. Right. So there's that aspect. And then there's also the fact that, you know, FDA isn't supposed to require any farms to get audits that's written into the law of FISMA. It says, you know, as part of this produce rule, you can't require farms to pay for audits to verify compliance. And so if audits are part of FDA's compliance strategy, who's supposed to pay for that and how do they justify that and how does it all fit in? So, I mean, really at this point, 
they're just more questions than answers. But this is another area where, you know, there's going to be still at least two years before any of these inspections would start. Um, and I, I expect a lot of this is, is really tied up in the appropriations process here in D.C., um, you know, we don't know how much money Congress is going to give FDA to implement this, these rules. And so that also impacts how much money FDA can give to the states to implement these rules. And I think the states are very concerned about ending up with, you know, what's called an unfunded mandate and having to carry out this law without the money to do it. So I think, you know, it's possible in the, if in the next few weeks we start to see some motion here in D.C. that results in getting some money to FDA to implement the rule, then we might start hearing more concrete information from FDA and the states about who's going to do what. Like I said in the, in the, in the introduction to the show, I, this is a don't shoot the messenger situation. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the things that's so frustrating about, about trying to talk about for me personally, about trying to talk about the food safety rule and, and gaps audits and the produce rule and the FDA is, is people tend to get really angry at you. And, and, you know, I just, I just, again, it's one of the reasons why I really respect what, what you're doing. I mean, you're even more on the firing line than I am trying to be out here actually explaining what the hell the FDA is thinking. And um, I just think, yeah, don't shoot the messengers, guys. We're we're trying to figure out how this is all going to work, yeah. and, and it and it's. I, I guess it's good for it's good to know right now that it's a process, and mm-hmm. that that we hope to have more information soon. Right, and and FDA has been talking a lot about you know how they really want to shake up the way that they've been doing inspections and compliance activities internally. They they want to have um, you know specifically trained inspectors that are are trained in farm etiquette, you know, what, what to do when you go on a farm and how is that different from other types of inspections that you might be used to. So they, they want to start specializing their inspectors and having more, you know, having inspections maybe be more conversational and more of a narrative interview and less of a list. You know, they're, they're thinking about things that they can do to try to, um, to address the fact that there is a lot of concern and fear and suspicion um, about FDA coming out on farms and, and what exactly that's going to look like. And, and so I, I think they're sensitive to that and, and they're working on it. And I think it is, it's hard to just be sort of in this wait and see period, especially now that we have a final rule. So I know that one of the major ways they, that any kind of an inspector or an auditor is going to verify compliance with the rule is going to be through record keeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's going to be looking at, at what you've done for that. What, what are the requirements for record keeping? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. I think a, a big part of this is record review and um, the produce rule does have a lot of requirements that relate specifically to the kinds of records that you need to keep. Um, and for just about every one of those main uh, sections that you, you mentioned at the outset, you know, worker hygiene training, agricultural water, all of that, there are specific record-keeping requirements that go along with it. Um, Some of the basic requirements just, again, have to do with sales, you know, how much are you selling so that you can justify if you're claiming an exemption or a qualified exemption. Um, But then, you know, the rest of it has to do with um, the the specifics of the requirements. And so if if a requirement is to uh, monitor your sources of agricultural water, and to take tests to develop this water quality profile, um, 
And then maybe if you're changing your production practices, if you're if you're using this, this microbial die-off rate that they've they've added, where you wait between your last harvest and or your last irrigation and harvest, based on you know this this formula that helps you understand how your generic E. coli levels may reduce naturally due to wind exposure or sun, things like that. Any sorts of those practices that you're implementing. You're supposed to keep records of those, you know, on this day I did this, on this day I did this, and they're supposed to be specific, you know, date, location, commodity, all of that. Um, they can be written or they can be electronic, whatever you prefer, as long as if FDA were to ask to see them, you could get them within 24 hours. Um, so, you know, a lot of this stuff, I, I think that's where where some of the difficulty is probably going to come in and some of the, the burden of compliance. Because so, I think a number of the, the requirements, things like monitoring for evidence of animal intrusion, you know, going out in your fields and looking for poop, that's probably something that many farmers are doing anyway before they harvest, but they just want you to keep more records of things like that. So I think being being open and creative about ways that you can do that is going to be really important to not get, you know, too stuck on the idea that you have to have like a, you know, the manure monitoring log, but that, you know, maybe it's something you can just add to your harvesting sheet that says we, we, we looked at that mm -hmm. before we harvested this crop, mm -hmm. right? That would be a record of that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that record keeping stuff. That's pretty scary. Um, you know, especially, I mean, and I'm, and I'm a big write it down guy, but, but boy, that gets intimidating. And especially when you start to deal with employees, because that's certainly not the reason why my employees came and worked on my organic farm. They didn't come here to, to be, to be writing stuff down. You know, they were, they were getting a feel for the soil and, and getting a tan, you know, sure. spending a bunch, spending a bunch of time documenting, you know, the presence or absence of this test result on this, you know, on this produce at this time and putting my initials down was not a high on their priority list. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I agree. I think there's, there's going to, I am hopeful that we're going to see some creative ideas um, that come out on, on how to do that in a way that is least burdensome. And I think that, you know, that'll be another place where trainings, um, you know, whoever it is in your area that you go to for, for training, they'll be providing some of those ideas. And so, you know, that's a place to, to go because, you know, there are some general guidelines for how you should keep your rules, but it doesn't say you have to keep them in a binder and a separate sheet, each one and whatever else it is, you know, it, it, there is that room for, for creativity and interpretation. Well, and I'll just say that's something that, that I'm going to be working on. You know, I think a lot of people who are involved with Purple Pitchfork know that I'm, I work on record keeping stuff and, and we're going to be definitely uh, attacking this one with a vengeance because I think it's going to be an important place. And I think there's some going to be some real opportunities maybe to even leverage the record keeping for food safety into some other areas, you know, to use it as an opportunity to upgrade your organic certification compliance mm -hmm. and maybe to get some additional information too um, that can that can help you run your business better. But that's certainly something that we're going to be taking a deeper dive with here uh, over the next six months to a year. Good. So yeah, just put that little plug like in. For, yeah, I think that's that's terrific and I think that 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 particularly if you're a certified organic farmer then you're already somewhat accustomed to some of these records and um, you know just this kind of documentation requirement and so being able to integrate these two I think will be really really key great so Sophia with that I think we're gonna take a break here and get a word from our sponsors and then we'll be right back I want to spend some time after the break digging into the some of the provisions that are actually in the rules, you know, what sorts of things are going to be required for compliance. So we'll be right back.
The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by the Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. What if you didn't have to worry about weak transplants and poor germination due to less than great potting soil, or getting truly finished compost for your homemade blend, or making sure that your employees remember to add the fertilizer charge? Ugh been there, done that. What if you could grow plants up until the roots filled the container without having to worry about supplying extra fertility? What if your potting soil had your back consistently year after year? That's what Vermont Compost Potting Soil can bring to you. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program going on now through December 21st can ensure that you enjoy the guaranteed best price, the best shipping options, and receive your soil at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software is designed from the ground up to manage the CSA you operate from customer sign-up right through delivery. Farmigo staff will work with you to customize the dashboard for your farm based on the way your CSA works. System setup is free, and the system can be configured for a wide variety of CSA models, from the traditional box plan right through fully modifiable boxes. On the customer side, Farmigo offers a portal for members to sign up, make payments, and access their account to manage vacation holds and site changes, all with the control by the farm over what can be changed and when the changes can be made. On the farmer side, you can send fully customizable confirmation emails and auto responses and generate reports to help you manage everything from harvest and loading the truck right through delivering the CSA shares. And they offer amazing customer support to you at no charge. They'll even call you if you need help. Learn more at csamanagementsoftware.com. All right, and we're back with Sophia Khrushchevsky from the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition talking about the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule. Boy, that's a lot of words. That's uh, that would that would that would be SK from NSAC <laughs> talking about the FISMA. Okay, that was easy. <laughs> Sophia, I thought we would dive in now to to these five major provisions of the produce rule and just kind of hit on some highlights. I mean, obviously in the time remaining in the podcast, we're not going to get a full explanation of of every nuance of each of, of the rule. But to kind of get into some of the the practical aspects of of what growers can expect in each of these areas and just in, in a broad sense and and maybe touching on some of the highlights about things that people were particularly concerned about as we went through the rulemaking process and how those things have been resolved. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. All right. So the first and, and I'm not going to go through these in the order that they're in the rule because I think there's I, I, I reordered them according to my thinking. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through it that way, but let's start with the worker training and health and hygiene section. So that basically says your workers have to wash their hands. They need a place to go to the bathroom and it's got to be clean and they shouldn't come to work when they're sick. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's essentially the extent of it. There are also some provisions in there that relate to if you have visitors on your farm and how to, prevent contamination from visitors. I mean, does that mean that I'm going to have to be like checking and making sure that the UPS guy doesn't have a cold when he comes on the farm? Uh, I don't, I mean, the, the way the word, the rule is written, you know, it, it asks that you take all steps reasonably necessary to ensure that your visitors, you know, are, 
using the the proper toilet and hand washing facilities, you know, or if they're also sick, it's sort of the same way that you would treat an employee. So if if someone coming by your farm isn't going to have any contact with your produce, um, then there's no there isn't really a reasonable likelihood that they would contaminate it. And so you don't really have to worry about, you know, asking them if they're sick or anything like that. But if you, you know, make it clear to visitors that, you know, if you are going to be in a place where you might come in contact with covered produce, then these are the things that we need to watch out for. Um, that, that would sort of be the extent of it. So that might mean that if I've got a kindergarten class coming out to, to walk through my carrot field, how am I going to handle that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it's probably less of a concern if they're walking through your carrot field than if they're walking through like your strawberry patch that you're about to harvest, you know? So those are the sorts of things to keep in mind. So maybe if you have a group of kindergartners coming through, it'd make more sense to take them through your carrot field than your strawberries. Okay. And then there's also, I think in that worker training section, there is this idea that workers have to be trained in the basics of food safety before they start handling the food, right? Right. Yeah. The rule does contain requirements for employee training um, that, you know, all of your personnel have to get training that's adequate based on what their job is. And and so part of that has to include um, training that relates to the principles of food hygiene and food safety and things like that. And then any, you know, additional trainings that might be appropriate to whatever their job is on the farm. Um, And another important training requirement is that you have to have at least one supervisor or other responsible party on your farm that gets trained according to a food safety training program that's at least equivalent to uh, standardized FDA recognized training. Um, and so, <laughs> okay, well, 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 can you put that in English? <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, that basically means that, you know, if it's you, if you're the owner operator, maybe you have a farm manager, there needs to be somebody on your farm who goes and attends a training or maybe does an online training, uh, that covers, you know, what the, the produce rule involves and what the produce rule requires. Um, and so that's something that, uh, currently, FDA has been working with uh, a group called the Produce Safety Alliance that's based out of Cornell University and developing a quote-unquote standardized curriculum. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to take a Produce Safety Alliance training program. You can. They're going to be offering them starting in 2016. Um, but you can also take another training program that's at least equivalent, which is sort of a fuzzy <laughs> way of describing uh, another training program, but but something that provides you with the same level of understanding about what FISMA requires as um, the, the standardized curriculum might. And so that might be offered online. It might be offered, you know, through, again, through a farm-based organization. It might be offered through uh, extension. And so what's important to keep in mind is that, you know, that again, you have to, you have to take a training. You can't substitute experience for training in this situation. You have to have someone on your farm that goes and gets trained. And is that something that's going to be an ongoing continuing education type requirement, or is that something I can do once and then I've one and done? Yeah. As, as the rules written, you know, it says at least one has to do this training. It doesn't say refresh annually. Um, Whereas with with supervise or with with personnel training on you know food hygiene and other um, food safety practices for for the people working on your farm that has to be at least once a year that you do those trainings. 
Um, but that same once a year doesn't necessarily require or apply to the, the supervisor who's doing kind of the standardized curriculum. And so I imagine that there will be more information that comes out from FDA on that in terms of continuing education or, you know, if, if the person on your farm who had enrolled in that food safety program leaves, you know, how much time do you have before you need to get someone else trained, that sort of thing. Some of those details, I think, will come out later. Great. The next section that I'm on my list here is domesticated and wild animals, or as, as I like to call it, animals, mm-hmm. right? But it's the FDA, so we had to have a few extra words thrown in there. Um, but basically, the animal requirement is, you know, try to keep animals out of your field and keep them from defecating on your produce, right? <laughs> yeah, that's basically the extent of it. I mean, it's it's worded pretty broadly, and what it requires um, is also, you know, worded in a way that's broad so that it, it really um, is based on, it, it's supposed to be a site-specific determination, what you do in terms of keeping animals out of, away from um, produce or, or, you know, reducing that potential that they might contaminate your produce. And so that's based on what you're growing, your, what your practices are, you know, what you've observed around your farm and your experiences. It's really intended to be site-specific. Um, and, and the main requirement is just that you you monitor where you're growing or where you're doing, you know, harvesting or packing or holding or growing of covered produce, that you monitor it as you need to throughout the growing season for evidence of contamination and then, you know, take the actions that you may need to take to not harvest contaminated produce and sell it. There's a few, you know, there's some more specific details, um, but that's that's really the gist. Okay, so... I went to a training one time with a third party certifier. It was it it wasn't somebody from a from USDA. It was one of the one of the private companies that offers the food safety audits. And this the trainer for this program was saying like if you found deer manure in your field. So if you found a couple of deer pellets in your field that you had to go out there with a dedicated shovel and scoop those manures pellets into a dedicated bucket and and then dispose of that in a black plastic bag that was going to the landfill. Yeah. Um, are we looking at that kind of, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Are, we, are we looking at that kind of requirement here? No. Or is it? Yeah, the rule definitely, it does not go into that kind of detail about how specifically you respond. I mean, they do say, you know, at the very least, you should be doing a visual assessment to see if there's visible contamination. And then if there is contamination, you know, they really word everything in terms of take measures reasonably necessary to, you know, ensure that you don't harvest that produce later. Um, They don't say what you have to do with, you know, the, the... the poop that you find. Um, and so I think some of that will sort of depend on what kinds of trainings you do and then what sorts of auditors you may have out there. But the rule doesn't have that kind of, of detail. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the part that makes me a little bit scared. Right. You know, when you talk about that reasonably necessary piece, because I mean, to me, like reasonably necessary might mean don't pick lettuce that the deer actually pooped on. And for somebody else, it might mean, you know, Hey, you got to stay six feet away from the lettuce that the deer pooped on. And I don't think there's any science out there that says that, that 
either one of those approaches is more valid than the other. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be another area where we're, we're going to be pushing to get more guidance, more explanation on what exactly this means and doesn't mean. I think oftentimes what it doesn't mean can be just as important. Um, and and so one, one piece of, of this particular part of the rule that's really important is that there is specific language in there that says, um, you know, Nothing in this rule is intended to convey to farmers, um, you know, or others really that that might be out there on the farm, like an auditor or, or a regulator. Nothing in the rule requires covered farms to take measures to exclude animals from outdoor growing areas, destroy animal habitat, or otherwise clear farm borders around outdoor growing areas or drainages. So they put that in the in the regulatory language to make it really clear to someone who might be going on a farm to see if the farm's in compliance so that they don't say, you know, oh, well, you've got this, you know, riparian buffer or something, and that's going to attract animals, and then the animals are going to contaminate your produce. you got to get rid of that. And so they were really clear on that aspect. And so I, I'm, I think that we can get some more clarity um, in terms of how, how what compliance means for some of these other provisions that might still be a little vague. So then there's a section on equipment, tools, and buildings, which basically says you, that your equipment, tools, and buildings have to be able to be cleaned and that you have to clean them. Um, what other requirements are in that section? Um, so that's also, I mean, those are the basics of that as well. They, they, you know, the tools and equipment you use have to be designed or installed or stored in a way to allow for them to be cleaned and maintained. You have to clean and maintain them as appropriate or frequently as necessary. Um, You do need to be careful if you're using the same equipment for covered and uncovered produce. There's some language in there about, you know, ensure that you prevent against cross-contamination um, between covered and uncovered produce. Sort of, They're sort of assuming that you might not be applying the same practices to your not covered produce, like your potatoes, that you would be, you know, your tomatoes. Um, although, you know, I think for a lot of diversified farms, it's probably more likely that, you know, you're just going to do the same thing for most of your crops. You're not necessarily going to have a whole separate set of practices that you apply to one that you don't apply to the other, but, you know, just making sure that if you're using a shovel for manure, that if you're going to use it for some other purpose, that means it might come close to produce, then, you know, you want to make sure you're cleaning and sanitizing if if that's appropriate to your operation. Is this going to mean that the wooden barrel washers that everybody's using for crops like carrots are not going to be allowed anymore? Yeah, that's that's a good question and one that just came up today, actually, in, in this um, question and answer session we had with FDA. And, and their response to that was that, you know, we don't intend for the rule to mean that farmers stop using uh, wooden surfaces for different purposes, whether that's the wooden bins or, or other purposes. Um, it just, you have to use your, your judgment and determine whether, you know, you can still adequately clean the wood so that it's clean enough for, you know, it doesn't harbor pathogens or other things that might, might cause it to contaminate the water or, or contaminate produce. So they, they, they made that pretty clear that they're not prohibiting the use of wood or wood surfaces, but that you do need to monitor them to make sure that they're, you know, they're still essentially that they don't become so rough or so grooved or something that they might not be able to be cleaned. Okay. Then there's a section on water and 
I feel like the language in the water section is really confusing. The requirement here is that the water that you use has to be clean enough for the purpose that you're using it for. And basically it divides, it says there's two kinds of water that are used on the farm. There's water that's used for irrigation and there's water that's used for washing and packing vegetables. Is that a fair statement? Um, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. They, they separate water between, um, water used during, um, oh wait, hold on one second. I'm going to stop that for a second and just pull up my notes here to make sure I'm saying it in the easiest way that I found to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Yeah, I would say that that's a fair way to break it out. It's primarily water used during growing or water used during harvest and other post-harvest activities, including hand washing. Um, and then sprout irrigation water also fits into that category. So they, they break it right. out by two separate categories in that sense. Okay. And sprouts, just just to be clear, sprouts are, they're sprouts. Microgreens aren't sprouts. If you're growing, if you're growing you know, arugula seedlings and, and harvesting the harvesting them at the single leaf stage, as long as you're separating from the separating them from the roots and growing them in media, those aren't sprouts, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the the water that we use for harvest activities and everything that happens after harvest activities. And of course, this would include the water that you use for cleaning in the packing shed Mm -hmm. or the water that you're using to wash your hands has got to be potable water. It's got to meet the drinking water standards. Right. The standard for for water for food contact surfaces, hand washing, post-harvest activities or harvest is no detectable generic E. coli for 100 milliliter samples. Okay. The water requirement for irrigation water is a little bit different. Actually, the, the, I'll, I'll tell you, frankly, the water requirement there kind of pisses me off because I don't think it has any scientific basis. It's basically the swimming water standard, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ultimate standard that they, they came out with for the, for irrigation water, um, I think was very disappointing to most in the farming community. Um, you know, they, they continue to, to justify its use. Um, and at this point, it's what's in the final rule. There, there is a lot of language um, in the rule that allows for alternatives, you know, being able to develop an alternative water quality standard or an alternative testing frequency. Um, but it really puts the burden on the farmer to be able to justify the use of that alternative with scientific data and information. And, you know, if FDA is basically saying this is the best we've got, based on science and other information, it's kind of hard to imagine how the farmer is going to be able to come up with something different. But this is an area where um, in addition to the two, three or four years that you have to come into compliance with the rest of the rule, you have an extra two years to come into compliance with with the standards that um, relate to to the use of irrigation water. Um, And so I am hopeful that kind of in that time, that means for most farms, you get four years or five years or six years to come into compliance with this, you know, these testing requirements, um, then that'll be time for more research to be done and more information to get out there. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that more alternatives will be developed either that are maybe regional specific or, or otherwise that, that allow farmers to, to use some alternatives. Cause I agree, this is, this is going to be one of the toughest points of compliance with the rule. 
So there's also this provision then with irrigation water for a withdrawal period that if I understand it basically says like, okay, if you're not going to do a withdrawal period, you've got to test your water and you have to do it with all these kinds of frequencies and you have to, you know, time it this way and blah, blah, blah. But then there's also an alternative that basically says, if you pull the water off of your crops for overhead irrigation X number of days before harvest, then that works too. Well, not exactly. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so they they don't really make a distinction at this point between like overhead and other forms of irrigation. They basically are are clumping together any kind of water use during growing. So irrigation water. But kind of regardless of if it's drip or overhead or any kind, if it is intended to or likely to come in contact with covered produce, then this standard applies. And the language that they have in there that allows you to wait a period of time between when you last irrigate and when you harvest, even if you do that, it doesn't mean that you don't have to do the testing. It just means that if your water exceeds the threshold, if it, if it exceeds the microbial water quality standard, you can still use that water. It just means you have to wait a certain number of days before, between when you last irrigate and when you harvest to allow for the natural reduction in microbes that occurs over the course of that time. Okay. And, and if I remember right, that's, that is actually determined by sort of a complex formula based on your test results. Is that right? Um, not quite. They, they give you a, um, they essentially give you the rate that you can use to calculate that reduction. And so, you know, you come you take your samples and then you figure out, you know, what your water quality looks like. Um, and if you exceed the standard based on your samples, if you exceed the microbial water quality standard, then you sort of plug in this, it's called a 0.5 log reduction rate, the microbial die-off rate. You kind of plug that in, and then that gives you the number of days that it would take for your water to essentially be down below the threshold. Now, if it takes more than four days in a row for any of the, you know, for the, for the microbial load essentially to be below the threshold. If it takes more than four days for that to happen, you just can't use that water in its untreated form. So in other words, if it's too contaminated, then you're just not going to be able to put the water on as irrigation water. Right. Unless you treat it. Unless or you treat you it. Or okay. irrigation methods so that you're, the water isn't going to come in contact with the covered produce. Hey, so that's an interesting question. I know this is one that I asked you last February, but I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and ask it again, which is, um, so if I'm drip irrigating my carrots, is that water coming in contact with my covered produce or not? So this question, I'm still trying to get a solid answer on, and I think we might have to wait for guidance before we know for sure, because basically what FDA has said, and they put this in the preamble, you know, again, this kind of explanatory text before the regulation, they say that if you are using like a buried drip irrigation on a root crop, then that irrigation method is intended to come in contact with the covered produce. And so the standard applies, which it just, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of, you know, any irrigation method that you use on a root crop is intended to percolate through the soil, right? And, and come in right. contact with what's below. And, and so I think that that's an area where, you know, our job right now is to, 
explain and talk to them and, and, and reason with them and try to see if we can figure out what, what that really means. Because at this point, it seems like if it's maybe buried dripping carrots, then, you know, then, then the standard applies, but not if it's some sort of overhead. And so is that going to encourage farmers to move back towards overhead instead of drip irrigation? And does that really make sense from a public policy standpoint or an environmental standpoint or an economic standpoint? Um, and so, or, from, or most importantly for this consideration is, does it actually make sense right. from a public health standpoint? Right. Oh yeah. So then the water, if you're, if you're not using, well, if you're using city water, do you have to test city water? No, you don't have to test um, municipal water and you don't have to test treated water. Okay. And then if I'm, if I'm pulling my water out of a well and I'm using that in my packing shed or in my harvest and packing operations, that water needs to be tested how often? Um, so groundwater has a different testing frequency than surface water. The, the testing frequency for groundwater is four times to establish an initial water quality profile. And those samples can be taken you know, in between two and four years, so building up to that initial um, profile. And then from, from there on, you just test once annually um, to d- determine that you're still at the same level. But I actually, I want to pause for a second, because I think you were asking if you were using that water as wash water. That's right. Um, and so if you're using groundwater as wash water, then, then you're um, testing for no detectable generic E. coli. And so you're, it, it's a different standard that you're testing t- for than if you were using that water for irrigation. I just want to make sure that that was clear. Um, and then your testing frequency, again, has to do with these four samples that develop your initial baseline and then one sample annually from there on to sort of verify that you're still at that standard. Now, if any one of your single annual samples fails to meet the no detectable generic E. coli standard, then you have to start testing four times per year. Okay. And, th- and then there's options for being able to treat that water um, in, to, to reduce the microbial load, right? It's not like you just can't use it. Right, right. Exactly. You can treat your water. Mm-hmm. Great. And then the final section of the rule, well, it's not the final <laughs> section of the rule. The final section that I want to talk about in the rule is the biological soil amendments. Um, which I, I think it's kind of funny that this is the one that they're, that they're, they haven't come up with the rules on <laughs> yet because it's like, it seems to me like one of the most obvious places to address food safety is people putting raw manure on their fields. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the status of the, the rules around biological soil amendments? Yeah. So, um, the most of the standards related to biological soil amendments of animal origin, so we're mostly talking about manure, though not only manure, but mostly manure, um, those are mostly finalized. Um, there was just one section and a very significant section that they didn't finalize, which has to do with the, the appropriate amount of time that you wait between when you apply raw manure to your field and when you can harvest. And so this is an area that in the original proposed rule, they had initially proposed a nine-month waiting period, which, you know, for some growers would mean letting a field lie fallow for a full year um, before they would be able to plant it in the following year because that length of time was just longer than the growing season. Um, 
And it also, you know, there was questions of conflict with the National Organic Program standards. And, and so this is an area where they really listened and took to heart the comments that they received um, and sort of acknowledged that the science wasn't really there to support the standard and that they needed to do more. They needed to do, you know, encourage more science. They needed to do a more robust risk assessment and then come up with a proper standard that reflects the results of that science and and risk assessment, and so they've they've said they're they're reserving that part part of the rule, and they're going to repropose a new application interval sometime in the next five to ten years. And so in the meantime, um, you know, if you're certified organic, you continue to follow the organic standard requirements, and it would probably be prudent for you know other farmers that are also using raw manure to to consider what other kinds of good agricultural practices might be out there regarding how long you should wait between the time when you apply raw manure and when you harvest. But for right now, there's no, there's no law about right, that. There's so no enforceable standard on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, we're, we're still, we're still in this world where organic farmers are the only people who are regulated as far as when they can put raw manure on their fields prior to harvesting fresh produce. Right Now there is, again, you know, there are those provisions that, um, again, say, you know, you can't put adulterated food into commerce. And so if you put food that's contaminated with raw manure, into commerce, that's a problem. Or there are also, you know, some there's there's some standards around how to um, store and move around manure and how to apply, you know, you have to apply it in a manner that either doesn't come into contact with the produce or minimizes the likelihood of contact after application. So there's some language around there, but ultimately there's no enforceable time period for untreated manure, um, which is, yeah, I think kind of mind-boggling for many. And, you know, especially because of this issue with the water standard, you know, if FDA could go and do the research and the risk assessment to develop an appropriate standard for raw manure, why couldn't they do the same thing for water? Instead, we're stuck with the EPA water quality standard, which the recreational water quality standard, which, you know, as we talked about, is really an ill-fitting standard for for farms. So as the FDA is going through the process of developing these guidance documents, is there room for people to have influence over that process still? I mean, it, it seems like so often, and we talked about this with the drip irrigation, I mean, it it doesn't seem like people are, like there's any reasonable, rational thinking going on with this from people who actually understand the way that water moves through the soil, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Is, is there is there a role for us to still play as, as farmers and activists, or is this, is this all going to be happening in, you know, in, in where, wherever it is that they make policy. I want to make some disparaging <laughs> comment there, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, there are a number of different areas where it'll be really important for farmers and advocates to stay engaged. And one is in the development of these guidance documents. Typically the process that they, that FDA uses to to put out these documents is that they first come out as drafts available for public comment. And so that gives us another chance to weigh in on the specifics about how these rules are supposed to be implemented. Um, and so that'll be a really important area where we really need that, that technical expertise and that experience of farmers to be able to, to provide FDA with some realistic scenarios of what makes sense and what doesn't and what should be different. So that's one area. And then, you know, I think another is that FDA has left open this door for alternatives, particularly on the issue of water, and that that's something where, 
you know, being able to support research or maybe participate in on-farm research projects through like the FAIR program or other grant programs to, to come up with alternatives that work and make more sense in your particular region or state or based on what you're growing. Um, I think there's a really strong role for farmers and for researchers and, and others to you know, get those grants and do that research and get that information out there, you know, sharing information about what kinds of practices work and don't work. Um, and then, you know, training is another area. And, and I think that farmer to farmer peer training programs are a really good way to, to share best practices and other ideas about how to deal with these rules. So I, I think there's definitely a role um, and, and we're going to be putting out information whenever there are opportunities to weigh in on issues or apply for grants. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's the resource that, that we like to provide. And um, so, you know, we'll, we'll continue to put out information on that as opportunities arise. Great. And if people want to stay engaged in that process and making, make sure that they're being kept abreast of those kinds of opportunities, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, I guess I would put in a plug for um, signing up for our, our action alerts or our weekly roundup. We you know, regularly put out information through our website, um, and you can sign up for food safety-specific alerts if that's what your major interest is, and you can do that through our website, which is sustainableagriculture.net. And then, you know, there are also, if, if you're not already part of your local farmer association or sustainable ag group in your area, you know, consider joining because those are other um, groups that are going to be doing a lot, I think, to put out education and informational materials um, and other outreach as, as the rules are implemented. Great. And, and, and please don't worry about plugging NSAC because I, I do think you guys are such a great resource and, and I'd encourage everybody to, uh, you know, as you're doing your end of the year donations, this is, this is a group that's working really hard to make things work for us. So let's, let's make sure that we're supporting them. So at this point, Sophia, we would normally turn to the lightning round and, but you're not a farmer. So asking you what's your favorite tool on the farm is probably not fair. It's, it's, you know, What's your favorite tool in the office? <laughs> oh gosh, that's probably a boring question. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I, I, my laptop, of course, is indispensable. This is how I, I do my work. I keep in touch with people working on these things and get information out there. I'm currently working on, you know, some more rule analysis so we can update our website and our, our Am I Affected flowchart to get that kind of information out. Um, it's how I know what USDA and FDA are up to on these issues, checking agency websites to see what kinds of new grant programs might be available to support farmer trainings, or also just keep in touch with our member organizations and see what kinds of things they're doing in this area. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a cheesy and probably predictable answer for someone who spends most of their days inside an office, but I, I do spend a lot of time on my computer, for better or for worse. <laughs> and so the... The other question that, that we like to ask everybody that comes on the show is, is if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? But since that doesn't really apply, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning attorney self one thing, what would it be? But that's, I don't know. So, but, but why don't you tell us if, if you could, if you could say one thing to all of the farmers and prospective farmers who are listening to the show out there about the Food Safety Modernization Act and the produce rule and, and even to a certain extent, the facilities rule, what would it be? 
Um, well, I, I guess I would say don't panic. Um, there is time to figure out exactly what these rules mean, and there are a lot of, of folks at work trying to get that information out there in a way that is clear and makes sense and, and really integrates food safety into all of the other aspects of business planning and, and farm management. And so food safety, you know, it shouldn't be this big, scary thing that's somehow outside of everything else that you're doing for your farm. It's already integrated into what you do. It's just a, a way of, you know, figuring out how to, to make sense of it as, as it works in, in your particular operation. And so I think that that's something that, you know, every, everybody is capable of doing. And uh, so just, just don't panic. <laughs> Sophia, thank you so much. I feel like this was a ton of valuable information and, and I hope this is going to be a tool that can help people to, to, to not have this be something that's keeping them up at night and, and hopefully helps them to, to guide having some more influence over the process, but also just being aware of the things that you need to be aware of as, as we're moving forward towards the implementation of this rule. So nice job. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 44 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show, including links to the resources we mentioned at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for, well, usually I would say Krzyzewski, but let's go with FSMA for this one. That's F-S-M-A. If it's not apparent already, I think that NSAC is a great organization doing great work. And while Sophia is modest enough to spread the credit around, I'd like to lavish it on NSAC. And I'd encourage you to do the same, especially as we're looking at end of the season giving. Their website is sustainableagriculture.net. If you've got questions about the FSMA produce rule and its implementation, let me know. My contact page is a great way to do this. If you've got questions, I'm sure others will too. And this is something that I'll work to keep folks up to date on through the blog and the newsletter. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, I would be most grateful if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.